Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Last week, we talked about the tragic consequences of sin. Dan called them sacred scars, as you remember them, if you were here last week. We looked in the book of Joshua, we studied the life of Achan, and uh, we found out that there are, in, in times in our life, these moments of terrible judgment that God brings as a result of the sin that we commit. This morning, I want to turn the coin over a little bit as we turn to Psalm 32, and I want to talk about the more merciful outcome of our sin that God, I think, offers to us each and every day for those of us who would be so inclined to possess it. Notice in this psalm, it begins this way. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I want you to imagine that you wake up one morning next to your house and you look outside and they're clearing an area just not too far from your neighborhood and it has a sign posted that says, coming soon, nuclear waste dump. How would that make you feel? For most of us who in the last few years in the 80s and 90s have seen uh, some of the results of hazardous waste that would cause quite an alarm for us. There are disturbing problems, and we've experienced those. Just how do you get rid of hazardous chemicals safely? Uh, today, that's not just an important question. If you're one of those people uh, growing up next to one of those sites, you begin to think of that as not just as a theoretical question, but a life and death question. This morning, I want to deal, as we look into Psalm 32, with a toxic waste that's far more lethal than those things we bury in certain Superfund sites. This morning in Psalm 32, we're looking at a buried toxicity that is a worldwide problem. And like with so many toxic chemicals, man has tried to bury this problem as well, safely away from himself, but its potency, its power defies burial. No matter how many canisters we try to find to put this particular form of toxicity away, the containers always break. And the poison always seeps back into life. And the Scripture says that this is guaranteed. And when it does surface, its effects are disastrous. They can be disabling. They can poison our lives. They can pervert them. They can hurt us. They can create sickness and depression. And the poison is called guilt. Maybe it's in your life this morning. Maybe you brought that toxicity into this particular service and you're feeling the heaviness of it and the poison in it. The toxicity of a polluted life. You know, we saw that in Achan as he tried to hide that away, but it couldn't be hidden. It came to the surface, it came to light, and it destroyed him and his family. But death is not just the only consequence of this toxicity. In fact, some of the more desperate and terrible judgments of this toxicity 
comes in other forms. Just a simple depression. A heaviness over life that takes life away, even as it's being lived out. A polluted conscience. What do you do when your own life feels like a super fun site? I want you to know years ago, I read in women's, a Women's Day magazine, Women's Day magazine, I should say, an author who presented four ways for you to take away guilt in your life. I want to give them to you, and they'll be seen on the screen above me. The first is this. This author said you could take guilt away in your life by doing one of four things. First, find an, an authority figure who says what you're doing is not wrong, but it's right. You just need another authority figure in your life. So if you're feeling guilty over something, you need to seek out somebody who maybe has a PhD after his name or he's someone who's powerful in the community and just let him tell you that what you're doing is okay. Secondly, this author years ago suggested you could do a second alternative. You might join a new peer group. Get out of the crowd that you're in that's more understanding. It's not judgmental in the way you're living. Third way to reduce guilt is just simply change your beliefs. Just change your beliefs. Now listen, I want you to know, we kind of smile at that, but, but these, are, these are real alternatives people take. Over the years, we've had people who know clearly what this church believes and, and looks and worships with us Sunday after Sunday in the Scriptures that, that we open before them. And then a particular issue comes up in their life that brings their life and the truthfulness of God's Word into incredible conflict. And if they want what they want when they want it, then they look to the church to change their beliefs. And if the church doesn't change their beliefs, then suddenly the Bible is wrong, or at least we're interpreting it as wrong. And they leave, and then they criticize the church for holding these narrow beliefs when clearly the Bible can teach something else. And they find an authority figure who will agree with them. Now that happens year to year in a few people's lives, and I'm thankful it's only a few. But change your beliefs is certainly an alternative. And then lastly, you might just, as this author said, increase the activity which sometimes makes the guilt go away. If you just do it long enough, just increase the activity and the guilt will go away. Now those are four of the very practical containers that people use all the time to store their guilt in. But the problem is, is those containers in time leak and they poison, and they pollute the conscience and the life, and it creates problems later on. Take Julie, an attractive, sensitive, 25-year-old single female who suddenly finds herself pregnant. She's not sure what to do, and as a result, she's feeling a load of self-reproach and guilt that won't go away, and so she shares it with her friends, and her friends tell her that, well, everybody's doing it, unfortunately, you just got caught. So she turns to a, a professional, and in that first meeting, the professional says something like this. Julie, your problem is nothing new or unusual. You were raised in a very religious home, and their unobtainably high moral standards were imposed on you. You became sexually involved with a man which is only natural for a woman of your age. When you became pregnant, your religious conditioning began to beat you down. We'll work together on this on these religious standards and these judgmental restrictions that are holding back your emotional growth. So Julie takes that advice. 
And for a time, there's a brief respite and relief. But then, after giving birth in the months that follow, this heavy hand of real guilt begins to return. And in her case, depression ensues. I don't know if many of you saw the article in our newspaper last week. It was an article about Japanese culture. The title was, Abortions Scar Many Japanese Consciences. I want to read just a section out of this because this is a different culture, not a Christian culture. But listen to what it says. It says, winding her way along thousands of tiny statuettes in an ancient hillside temple, Yuka Sugimoto finds that finds the one she is seeking and lingers in contemplation of the secret act that brought her here. Many Buddhists come to temples to pray for good health, a new husband or money, but not Sugimoto. Every month she comes to this temple in the ancient Japanese capital to make amends for an abortion she had nearly two years ago as an unmarried student. Like tens of thousands of women throughout the country, she regularly visits a Buddhist temple to console a tiny statuette known as a Mizuko Jizu, that to her symbolizes her foregone baby. I think I've done something bad enough to be cursed, says Sugimoto. Japan is not sundered by the kinds of debates about, divorce, about abortion that are common in the West. In Japan, abortion is entirely legal in the first five months of pregnancy, and it hardly stirs a murmur within society. There are no protests at abortion clinics, no debates about banning abortions, and no politicians taking stands on the issue. In fact, the last legal restrictions on abortion were removed in 1948. Even though virtually everyone here believes that the decision whether to have an abortion is a woman's own business, it is striking how uneasy many of these women are after exercising that right. The signs of a pervasive but silent mourning over abortions are the tens of thousands of these statuettes that are called guardians of aborted fetuses. In temples across the country, women and sometimes men come to stand before these monuments to express their grief, their fears, their confessions, and their hopes of forgiveness. The fact that you have murdered someone will be with you all your life. It will not disappear, said a 27-year-old salesman whose words prompted a swell of tears from his girlfriend as they stood before this statuette. They dressed the Mizuko figurines like little newborns, wrapping them with bibs, hand-knit sweaters, booties, or hats against the cold. And they pour water over the childlike figurines to quench their thirst. I pray for its spirit to safely enter the other world, one Japanese woman says. Koki Irakara, a doctor who has performed many abortions over the years, says his patients come in and rarely express sadness or guilt, at least on the surface. And yet he, a gynecologist, goes with other doctors to a temple shrine each year in order for them as physicians to be cleansed of their guilt. You see, guilt is not something that Christians made up. It's something that God imposes in an absolute universe that He has created with boundaries. And regardless of our cultures and regardless of our beliefs or regardless of what we want for our lives, those absolutes are embedded in the human heart and must be suppressed in these human containers. But they leak. The point is, sin was never meant to be buried. 
It was meant to be exposed. It was meant to be expressed. It was meant to be admitted. It was meant to be confessed. That is God's way with sin. But when you bury it, it takes on all kinds of Halloween-like mask, like depression, or a sense of being cursed, or rebellion, or anger, or loss of self-esteem, or listlessness, or fear, or just the heavy mask of deceit. You know, Jeremiah spoke of that deceit when he said, everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth, and they have taught their lips to speak lies, and then they weary themselves with all of it. Bearing my guilt, bearing wrongdoing makes life hard and heavy and difficult. And yet when you look to the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, you see a place of freedom, but it's a freedom publicly admitting the travesty of our transgressions. You see, the cross tells me how to be free. The cross tells me where to be free. It tells me how to be free and that the God-man, Jesus Christ, died but He didn't die secretly, not buried away. He died openly. And by dying openly, naked, on a cross, He demonstrated publicly for all the severity of sin and that it couldn't be ignored. You had to look at it and the horror of it and the death of it. My sin is so bad that death is the only liberating payment. And yet the cross is empty because the cross tells us that sin has been paid. The sacrifice has been made if we would just receive it. It tells us how to be free. It also tells us where to be free. You know, if you think of the cross, think of a cross. A cross to man is a relational compass. It's how to be free. It's where we need freedom. We need freedom vertically, don't we? We need to know that we're free. We're not shackled. We're not condemned. We're free in our relationship with God. But also the cross tells us that we're to be free this way too, in relationship to one another, because transgression brings alienation with one another, not just with God. So the choice is either to bury the toxicity of sin and suffer the poisons that then leak out, or it's to believe the cross of Jesus Christ and to find freedom there with God and with one another. Sounds easy when you say it like that, doesn't it? And that's how this psalm begins. It begins on this high note as David, now free, says, how blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. The sin starts on this tremendous high note. David is feeling the freedom, these fresh breezes of being free with God and free with one another around him. And that's what he's telling us. But I want you to know, if you look at verse 3, that was not David's first choice. His first choice is often our first choice. Notice it says there, when I kept silent about my sin. That was his first choice. It's to bury, to hide sin. You might put on your outline, it's to keep it quiet. That is our first inclination with sin, is to keep that sin quiet. Now David wrote this psalm with a particular sin in mind. And I don't know where you are this morning, but I hope that you'll focus today, if you have a guilt problem, on whatever sin is right before you, the first one that comes to mind. Every time I read the psalm, I can't help but think of one that I tried to bury for a long time. It occurred when I was a first-year student in seminary. 
Now, I went up with a clean heart and an excitement to serve Jesus Christ. And the first thing I was introduced to in that summer was a summer of what they call baby Greek. Now, it's anything but baby, except it's constantly irritating you, crying out for you, making messes for you, etc. So maybe that's why they call it baby Greek. But anyway, during the year, I'd never been a good student, and I was determined I was going to be a faithful student in the Scriptures. And so all through that summer, I studied as I had never studied before. And I found that I had a propensity in the languages. And I had guys who were from Stanford and other places, but I found myself excelling in the languages. So all through that summer, when I'd get back my exam, I'd make an A. And I kind of got a reputation as we moved to the final exam as somebody who was pretty smart in the languages. But then I began to be prideful about that. And I said, I've got to finish this class with an A. So we took the final exam, and on this final exam that we took, there was a, a Greek phrase and one Greek word that cracked this phrase that I had to come up with, and I, I'd studied it, but I could not remember it. Now, we were free to use the Greek lexicon on certain things, so I used it on this certain thing, but also turned my lexicon to a place where I was not supposed to turn it just to see what that word was. I found it, I answered it, and I made an A on the final exam. You know, when we started the fall, and we'd be in classes together, we'd be in discussions as students, and somebody would say something, they said, we ought to ask Robert about that. I mean, gosh, he made an A in Greek. And if I had done that rightly, that would have been a sense of contentment. I said, yeah, I can help you out. But anytime anybody mentioned the word Greek, I just felt condemned. Anytime anybody would pray and pray for a pure heart or godliness or holiness, I'd feel condemned. All day long, I felt as some, I mean, as verse 4 says, thy heavy hand was upon me and my vitality was drained away as with a fever heat. But I wanted to keep it quiet. You know, that never works, does it? Now, you can make it work, but it comes with a cost. There's a second option, and the second option is found in verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. Here's the better response. Speak it out. That's the better response. Speak it out. It's like my wife did to me one time when I came in after we had had a little tussle and I was at fault and I came in. I just wanted to hug her and say I was sorry, but I didn't want to really say I was sorry very loud. You know, so you just grab and go. <laughs> she said, what? <laughs> so then she pulls me back and goes, louder, louder. And you know, that's exactly the path John the Baptist was called to be. Before Jesus Christ came, John the Baptist came, and you know what his message was, if I can summarize it? Louder! Don't bury your sin. Louder! So they all came out, all over Israel. You know what they did? They came out confessing their sin. They said what they did was wrong. They said it specifically. They said exactly what they did. I'm an immoral man. I'm a drunk, I'm a liar, I'm greedy, I'm prideful. And in that they found tremendous freedom of the Spirit and they built a highway for the Messiah into their hearts. When we bury our sin, we commit a grave tragedy 
against our own hearts. You know, you might wear verse 5 out over your lifetime, but you'll do a good job. When it says, I acknowledged my sin to thee and my iniquity I did not hide, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then look, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my iniquity. I remember going into my professor four months later after the Greek test and how difficult that was. I felt like I had concrete boots on going to that third floor of that administration building and knocking on the door of my professor. And he said, yes, what is it? And with all the courage that I could muster, I said, Mr. Kaufman, I cheated this summer. He said, tell me about it. So I told him the story in every graphic detail. And, and I began to cry because I had seared myself. I'd, I'd injured myself. And he knew that. And you know what was interesting? That word had nothing to do with my final grade. But it had everything to do with my character. Everything. And this professor understood that. He forgave me. But I walked out free between God and myself, but between me and that professor. And that became a badge of honor for my character. The passage here tells us if you will confess your sin, not secretly, publicly, to one another who you've transgressed, to the God that you've injured, to your own life, He will take away the guilt. Now I want you to know that sometimes after you've confessed your sin, and there are some of you who have an extra sensitive conscience, there are some of you who've confessed your sin, but you still feel guilty. There are certain people like that all their life, they feel like they just, they somehow that's just not good enough. There could be several reasons for that. It could be because you think that God requires some kind of payment from you, some kind of misery from you in order for you to be, quote, forgiven. You're like that heretical group from the 13th century known as the flagellates who would go around Europe beating themselves with whips and chains until they bled from their backs and arms and legs so that they could be forgiven. And yet, verse 5, if you look at it, it says, confession is all God requires to be forgiven. That's it. That's hard to believe in it, but that's it. Author Bruce, Bruce Larson tells the story of a young man in the Philippines who carried a secret burden for past sins. He had confessed it, he even confessed it publicly, and yet he still felt guilty, and it robbed him of the joy of his life. He felt no sense of peace in that forgiveness. And yet there was a real godly woman in the church who was known as a prayer warrior and oftentimes would speak and, as if God spoke to her. And so he challenged her one day. He said, next time God speaks to you, ask Him what sin I've committed. And so months passed and he bumped into her at church one day and he said, Hey, has God told you about the sin I committed, still suffering under the guilt of it? And she says, yes, He has. As a matter of fact, He has spoken to me. He said, really? He spoke to you about my sin? Yes. Well, what did He say about my sin? He said, I don't remember. That's what He said. There is unbelievable forgiveness here today. <laughs> unbelievable forgiveness. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad it is, if you came in here with a toxicity in your life, 
in your soul, in your heart. The fact that you could humbly bring yourself before a holy God and just say, oh, Father, forgive me. Forgive the guilt. Make it go away. I'm sorry. Jesus Christ has paid that and will take that guilt away. I want you to look at the end of verse 5. You see the little word selah? Selah in verse 5? In Hebrew, that's a little word that means to pause, to stop, to ponder. It says if you're still feeling guilty, you need to stop and you need to go back on these first five verses and you need to go over them and over them and over them until you understand that the guilt that's stalking you if you've asked forgiveness is not real guilt. It's a false guilt that condemns and kills. But the guilt of God is taken away with forgiveness and you need to master those verses so that you can feel clean and free. Now there's some other reasons why we don't feel forgiven. And I want to talk here for just a moment in the verses that follow because he has this beautiful picture of the freshness of forgiveness, but then he also introduces after verse 5 what I call some forgiveness fallacies. Take a look there. Forgiveness fallacies. The first is this, that God's forgiveness has no time limit. And here's what I want you to know. Yes, it does. God's forgiveness does have a time limit on it. In verse um, 6 it says, Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. You know, there comes a time in this flood of great waters where you resist and you resist and you resist and you think, well, I can do it at any time. But there is a place where you go on and keep sinning, where there's a place beyond which there is only judgment. And so forgiveness does have a time limit. Noah found out that, and he understood that when he entered the ark, and all those who stood around kept thinking, it's just going to keep on just like it's always been. But there was not that. There was judgment. Pharaoh understood that when he kept hardening his heart to the place that his heart was broken when God took his firstborn son. There comes a place where forgiveness gives way to judgment. Forgiveness has a time limit. Hebrews 10.26 says, If we go on sinning, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Now what that means, God prescribes, but He prescribes it in a way to get your attention. But forgiveness has a time limit. There's another fallacy, and it's this. Forgiveness is synonymous with full reconciliation. Oh, no, it's not. Listen very closely. Verses 8 through 10 provides us with a process of reconciliation that forgiveness only starts. Once forgiven, a truly contrite heart wants to do two things. If you, are, if you receive the forgiveness of God with a contrite heart, there are two things you're going to want to do if you truly ask for forgiveness. The first is, you'll not want to repeat that offense. You'll not want to keep doing it. Now, you may still fall to it, but there is a certain new sense of vigor that says, I don't want to live this way. And you begin to struggle against that, not just give in to it. And then secondly, you want to somehow make up for that offense. Whatever you can do, whatever's within your power, you would want to make up for that offense. Notice in verse 8, God is speaking here as we move beyond forgiveness to reconciliation. He says this, 
I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. See, once forgiven, what God is saying, listen, now that you're forgiven, and I offer that freely in my son, but now allow me to counsel you in the way that you should go so that you're not just simply asking again and again for forgiveness, but you're stepping into the promised land of my freedom. And you say, well, how do I do that? Well, in the verses that follow, he begins to tell us that forgiveness is not synonymous with reconciliation, but you need to be reconciled. You need to have that freedom. And there's two reasons he gives. Let me give them to you. And you might write these down. They're not going to be on the screen. Some have tried to use forgiveness to excuse them from the responsibility of restitution. Let me say that again. Some use forgiveness to escape the responsibility of restitution. Let's say today we finish the service, you're excited, you're beginning to walk out to your car and you see me, and I'm backing out with my five-year-old Pathfinder. Now my Pathfinder on the back has a steel bar with a big old spare tire on it. And you've just bought you a new 1996 Plymouth Voyager. It's unblemished, it has no spot on it, and you're real excited, and I'm backing up clumsily, not looking, and I use that spare tire as a battering ram, and I hit your shiny new Dodge uh, Plymouth Voyager. And you begin to see the glass shatter and the, the metal to kind of fold into all kinds of odd shapes on the side of your Plymouth Voyager. Mine is hardly damaged at all. Now you're still a fairly long way away and you gasp as you see that and you see me get out and look at your car and then I bow in prayer. And I say something like this, Dear Lord, please forgive me for being so preoccupied and clumsy and give my dear brother grace as he sees the extensive damage. I have done to his car I have caused out of sheer negligence and provide for his financial needs as he takes his car to have it repaired. Thanks, Lord. Amen. As I drive away, I smile to you and I say something like, everything's okay, brother. I've prayed about it. May God be merciful to you. Bye. And I drive off. Does that sound ridiculous? Did you know that's how a lot of people live their life? in regards to the transgressions that they commit against people that they love and care about? Would I be forgiven in hitting your car by asking that prayer? Yes. Would I be reconciled to you in hitting your car and driving away? No. No, I'm not. When damage has been done by my sin, forgiveness starts in a very healthy way a process of reconciliation, but it doesn't end there. And you need to hear this to be healthy because we live in a world of absolutes with a God who's holy and just. It doesn't end there. One must go on and restore what is within one's power to do what is right, to clear up as much of the damage as possible by the grace of God because of what I've done. And how do they know what their responsibility is at that moment? That's what verse 8 is. Verse 8 is when we've asked forgiveness, we turn to God, and here's what God says. If we draw close to His Word, He will instruct us and teach us in the way that we should handle that divorce. He will teach us and instruct us in the way that we should handle that lie. He will teach us and instruct us the way that we should handle 
the fact that we covered up a truth at the company and embezzled funds. Or that we were jealous of our best friend and we talked behind their back and damaged their reputation. We can ask forgiveness and God will grant it and give us a clean heart this way. But then He will go on and say, will you listen to me? And allow me to instruct you with my eye upon you in the way that you should go so you can have freedom? Because if you don't, you'll stand alienated with those people and a poison will seep into your life and you'll become lonelier and more isolated and life becomes a way of speaking like Jeremiah says, things that deceive to try to hold all that together and life becomes weary when you live like that and hard. And it's not the way it was intended to be. Let's say someone gets divorced and they act irresponsibly. They're not a Christian. They come into this body. They find Christ. They get excited. They find forgiveness. It's a liberating moment for them. And over the weeks that follow, as they grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of God's Word, there comes a place where the heavy hand of God begins to press. To press them back where? To the, to the hurt they've caused others. So maybe what that means for them, maybe their spouse is remarried, whatever it might be. But you know, sometimes it's good. God will lead you to go back to those people. Maybe your children and say, I'm sorry. Maybe for others, it's more than just saying, I'm sorry. Maybe you walked away because you had the full endorsement of this world to forget it. But now under the new kingdom, you don't forget it, you make restitution for it. Maybe there's child support to pay. Maybe there's some kind of financial need that your ex has that you really still are responsible for. Maybe the company needs to be repaid, even if it means it makes everything of what you have. Maybe it means going to a friend and saying, you know, months ago I said this about you. And you heard about that and I knew you heard about it and you withdrew from me, but I didn't have the courage to come talk to you about it and I've hidden it. And as a result, we've kind of had this funny relationship ever since. Have you ever felt that? Where when I'm around you, I kind of walk in this way and you're kind of walking that way and we still speak civil, but the relationship is gone. It's gone. We want it back, but we don't know how to get it back. There's only one way to get it back. You have to ask forgiveness and you have to make restitution. You have to do whatever is necessary. Do you have the courage to do that? To have a clean life. Some people try to use forgiveness as an excuse from the responsibility of restitution. I want you to know, secondly, some people use forgiveness as an excuse for building or rebuilding relationships. I've already mentioned that a little, but let me just say some more. For over 30 years, my dad was an alcoholic and he did whatever he pleased. The cycle was always the same. He'd get drunk. He'd go on binges. My mom would get upset. It would get out of control. She would try to pack her bags and leave, and then he would repent. She, he would come back and beg forgiveness, declare his love for her, and so on and so forth. And her being a kind-hearted, enabling kind of woman, she would forgive him, and he would equate her forgiveness as acceptance for his actions. You understand that? So he'd go and drink again. And the cycle of misery would start over and over again. That is, until I got old enough to know what was going on. And when I got old enough and my brothers got old enough and my dad did that one time, we stepped in and we said, that's enough. Oh, he went through his whole 
spiel of forgiveness. And we forgave him. We just said, you're not going back to mom. Not until there's restitution. He said, what does that mean? I mean, you could see his face went white. And I said, well, for starters, you've got to enter a, enter a drug program. Then after that, you've got to go to a halfway house, if I understand what the counselor is saying. And then after that, Dad, one year, one year, you've got to live outside the home and demonstrate a drug-free life. And then when that happens, Mom will be able to trust you. And she's willing to do that. She's already said she's willing to do that. But she's got to have trust restored. She forgives you. She just doesn't trust you. He said, okay. He went through the program, went through the halfway house. For one year, he lived in another city. And when the end of that year came, the relationship was restored. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is built around the cross of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation is built around the pliability and obedience of my heart. And there has to be both if there's going to be health. I want you to look at the figure in verse 9. It says, Do not be as the horse or as the mule who has no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they would never come near you. Here's this figure of speech, this horse and this mule who naturally don't move towards people. Their instinct is to move away from people. They're not necessarily natural friends with human beings and they need a bit and a bridle to bring them. Their nature, their instinct pulls them away. I want you to know, our nature, our selfish nature, our fallen humanity pulls us away from people in times of sin. Pulls us away from people in times of guilt. And we have to overcome that natural instinct. How? By going back to verse 8 and believing that God can lead us into the promised land that we're studying about in the case of Joshua. We can never achieve an intimacy of our hearts. We can never win the relationship back with our friends until we overcome our natural instincts in Jesus Christ and call upon Him to help us. To put His bit and His bridle on us. Otherwise, we think coming back and asking forgiveness is they're going to humiliate us. Or they're going to say, yeah, I thought you were talking about me. Or the company's going to run us into the ground. All these fears. Yeah, I'm going to flunk out of seminary and they're going to send me back. And you know what I have in that? You can underline them in verse 9. I have no understanding of the grace and power of God when I live like that. But on the other hand, when I trust God and let Him lead me with His counsel, He leads me to life. He leads me to health in my soul. He frees me up. He reconciles me with relationships. And as a corporate body, He builds a healthy church. You know what the motto of verse 9 is? Don't be a donkey. <laughs> I'd like to say it another way. <laughs> now we come to the end of the psalm. And He comes to the end and He says... Many are the sorrows of the wicked, and we understand that now, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, listen, he who trusts, underline that. You've got to trust. It's a faith life. He who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, those of you who are forgiven, and shout for joy, all you who are upright. You finally submitted in your heart. That's the key.
And there should be great rejoicing when you come to the end of this psalm for two reasons. God's forgiveness is real and absolute, if you'll notice there. And God's instruction works, he says. It reconciles people together. The result of that in a church is a healthy fellowship of forgiven people. There's a little boy who passed a pet store on his way home from school and every day he would stop and play with these little pets. And finally, there was a group of puppies that were brought in and he wanted a puppy very bad. The store owner said, well, it was going to cost a certain price, and so he went back and saved his money, and finally one day brought in a piggy bank, broke it, and there was all the money. It's all there, he said, enough to buy one of those little puppies. So as you do when you go to a pet store, you know, they open the little box, and all the little puppies run out, and you try to figure out which one you want. And he finally picked one, but the one he picked had a crippled leg. And he said, I'll take that one. And the store owner said, oh, no, you don't need that, that little puppy has a crippled leg. You, you need to go out and be able to run and play in the park and all that with a dog who can run with you. And then the little boy lifted up his pants legs. And there were two braces there. And he said, Mister, I'm crippled. And I want a dog who's crippled. Because since we're both crippled, I thought we could be better friends. I want you to know, if I could pull back my heart with this coat, or your heart, you know what you'd find in there if it's healthy? Braces. Braces. Because we're all crippled. And on one brace, it would have the words forgiveness. Absolute, free, in Christ, provided for you, but not secretly. He did it openly, naked, and not ashamed as He suffered for your sin. You have it by asking for it. On the other brace, reconciliation. Found as one submits and obeys Jesus Christ and gives his life and does whatever is necessary, no matter how much the fear shouts, you'll be humiliated. You trust and you go and you say, Please forgive me. What can I do to make that up? And whatever is within your power, you can't do everything. You offer it in order to have the real freedom that's in Jesus Christ. Where are you today? It is so important for me to say to you as one of the pastors of the church, we must stay a healthy body. And so I want you to go back as we close. I want you to look. If you would look back up to me with me, when you get back up and it talks about your sin, it only says sin. It doesn't say what sin it is. But you can put in there a blank. How blessed is He whose transgression is forgiven, whose, and you can put your sin there and you can have forgiveness here today. You can walk out clean on the authority of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, there are some of you that need to go more than that. You need to go public. Listen to me. Listen. You need to go public in that you need today, not tomorrow, today, to call that friend. You need today to resolve to speak to the employer of your company. You need today to call some previous relationship and you need to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, and then name it. And then there's others of you who today need to drive a stake in the ground around this passage. You need to mark it and start and say, on this day, I determined to clean up whatever is within my power on that thing that God has brought to mind in my life. Now you can say, oh no, Robert, we can't do that. All I'm saying is, you can be a donkey or you can be a child of God. But if you want the freedom that's in Christ... You cannot go on in your life 
trying to put the things in your life in little canisters of excuses and think you're going to get away with it. Haven't we understood that by now? It must be dealt with. But how blessed, how happy, how free is the man or woman whose transgressions are forgiven and whose life has become obedient to do the things that need to be done and who stand in the freedom of that and move into the next season of their life liberated. That's what I offer to you today. Not in Robert, but in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads? And as you do, I want to lead us in a prayer. And you must personalize this prayer for your life. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful to hear again today of the beauty, of the incredible worth of the cross of Jesus Christ. And to know that I stand in a fellowship of crippled, sinful people whose lives have all kinds of blemishes, past and present, because of the horror of sin. I'm among friends here. There are no perfect people. And yet I also understand because of this great truth that though we're all in the same camp, there are some of us who are liberated, who can walk with these braces, and there's others of us who still can't walk. And part of it is because we're not willing to listen. Help me to listen. And so on this day, today, here in February, I bring this sin before you that I hadn't been able to escape. May Your Holy Spirit bring it now to mind for everyone. But Lord, I bring this sin to You. I hold it up to You. I confess it for what it is. Lord, take away my iniquity. Cleanse my heart. And Father, as I think about those things that I've committed, maybe there's still a sense of irreconciled relationships. And one of them's come to my mind. Give me the courage, Lord, with Your Spirit to go to that brother, that sister, that son, that daughter, that wife, that husband, whoever it might be, and say, would You forgive me? And to trust in Your liberating power. And to say to them, I'll make whatever restitution I can. I can't do it all. All I can offer you is a broken spirit, a willingness to say I'm sorry, and to do that which is within my power. Lord, help me to commit to that this moment. Build us a crippled people into a holy body. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that You give to their heart what You gave to mine that day as I walked out of that professor's office. A new sense of life. A new sense of freedom. A new sense of liberation. And a new character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.